Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Um, so, uh, welcome to the Women in Public Policy Seminar. I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at WAP, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. We are ambitious. Yes. Uh, part of that, uh, contributing to our mission, are these seminar conversations that we have because it gives us an opportunity to uh, connect um, researchers uh, with staff and students and fellow faculty um, to talk about what are the what are the cutting edge, what are the most kind of important ideas that are out there right now about how do we um, close these gaps. Uh, so I'm. Delighted you can all be here. And for those of you who are sitting in the seminar, what you don't realize is that you're actually part of a much larger virtual community. So we have a very popular podcast now. So you can think of yourself um, sitting in literally a world community. Now, as uh, we sit in our world community of all these other listeners, we want to be um, uh, attentive uh, to, uh, we want to make ourselves as clear as possible. So if you have a question, for the speaker, please make sure it's actually a question and that it's got to do with the specifics of the presentation. So we're gonna to try to keep on track, particularly um, to keep focus for our virtual listeners. And also related, we, we would ask that cell phones are turned off. So now I get to do the fun part of introducing our current speaker. Our current speaker is Lisa Berkman. She is the Thomas D. Cabot Professor of Public Policy and Epidemiology she is also the director of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, Professor Berkman is a social epidemiologist, which he basically looks at are how indicators of socioeconomic status, gender, and race end up influencing long-term health outcomes. And she's also very concerned with um, the effects of public policy on um, bridging gaps across um, socioeconomic and demographic categories in terms of health outcomes. So I will leave it there. We're very excited for her to present her research today on the long-run impact of maternity leave policies on women's health. Please join me in welcoming. Great. Well, it's wonderful to be here, and I apologize for being late. I actually had thought there was like an early lunch, and then and then people started speaking. I didn't realize I was starting off uh, late already. Um, but it's really wonderful to be here. I actually increasingly have come to be engaged with people in public policy, um, and so having your thoughts about how to frame things and your reactions is really valuable. I'm going to talk today actually about this paper on the long run effects of maternity leave on women's mental health, but I also have another paper that I thought would give you a very good balance of where this issue um, is sitting in terms of women and work and stress and long run health outcomes. So the maternity one is um, using a, an experiment as an evaluation, sort of a natural experiment study. The other one is an observational study that I'll get into. But before that, what I want to do is take a few minutes to frame my perspective on why I think this is so important, because it's not the usual frame. I think many of you um, come from a frame where policy um, is important in terms of its immediate goal. So maternity benefits are important because they give 
um, benefits actually and keep people in the labor force and potentially have effects on children's um, health. But we don't often think about the long-run health of long-run health impacts of social and economic policies. Often we think about um, health care studies as having the most predominant impacts on health. Well, I think that health care is really important, I'm all for it, but it has a negligible impact on health. Um, and if we think about the long-run determinants of health, social and economic policies are far more, um, have far more potential in terms of really impacting health than anything we do at healthcare at the margins once people are sick. So once we're sick, we, it's really great, we should all get healthcare. Um, we should get the best healthcare, it should be available to everybody, I'm all for it. But it doesn't influence our risk of getting sick in the first place, except a very little primary prevention, which is at the margin of almost all healthcare things. So this is much more promising. So the reason I got here was that I was on a National Academy of Medicine um, and a National Academy of Science general um, committee where we were trying to look at the diverging trends in life expectancy for women um, that had happened in the United States. And this is the first graph that actually frames this Na National Academy of Science um, report. And what you see is that in the mid-1980s, and if you backed it up to like 1940s or 50s, you would see that the United States ranked about in the middle in terms of life expectancy among kind of rich industrialized countries. So we never did great, we were never at the top, but we were like hanging in there in the middle. And over the last really 30 years, 25 by this thing, something dramatic pretty, pretty much happened. And we have a very poor understanding of what that is. So the United States, um, if you look at women's life expectancy, it actually increased a tiny, tiny bit. So if you look at it and disregard the data from all the other countries, you think, okay, well, we had a little, little increase in life expectancy, although basically there was a lot of stagnation at later years. But all other countries zoomed ahead, and we are now on the bottom. We rank at the bottom of OECD countries for life expectancy for women. We are the worst, absolute worst. Um, for this, and men do only marginally better when men like have a little bit higher increase in life expectancy and still do poorly, but they, are, they don't do as badly as women. Women actually do worse. Um, so there was an academy uh, report to look at this, I was on it. I would say we looked at all the usual suspects. It accounted for almost none of the variants. This it remains a pretty unexplained Phenomena, yeah. So does that mean you didn't look at like socioeconomic, the diverse socio? You did. Can you we talk did. about some of the things that you? Yeah, yeah. So the report has a chapter on smoking, which actually is the one thing that does account for some of this. We looked at inequality. I did a whole chapter on social networks. We did obesity. We looked at medical care. Um, what else did we look at? Pretty much everything you could think of. We looked at hormone status and you know, menopausal kinds of issues, um, hormone replacement, and none of them, all of them are really important risk factors. They're all really important, but none of them account for the lag, for the difference. That is, inequality didn't rise that, that much more in the United States compared to a lot of other countries, enough to account for this. And one of the things about the United States in terms of inequality is that while the risk of inequality is pretty high, and certainly in terms of economic inequality, I'll show you, you know, you, you all know, things have happened. But for instance, education, which was the common denominator, the United States ranks high on, you know, percentage of people finishing high school. 
So none of these things answered it. Now, the data in some cases were lousy. Like to do a comparative cross-country thing with 22 countries you know, is the lowest, lowest common denominator. And often there weren't good data. But it, it was pretty frustrating. I would say it was not, not really satisfying. Um, and then I'll show you. And then I want to add to this um, something that just came out. So Brookings did a report recently on inequality and uh, mostly in relationship to what was happening for Social Security. And there have been a lot of reports of rising inequality and life expectancy. And there have been, I mean, you may be familiar with some of the actually very, very intriguing data um, looking at women who have um, very low levels of education having absolute increases in mortality. So not only do they not get better a little bit, they actually got absolutely worse. There are a lot of questions about selection in those papers. People have debated it a lot. But this report came out a couple of uh, weeks ago, actually. And I thought, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful report, I think, um, in which they looked at um, income distributions by deciles. So they spread people along income deciles, um, looking at different birth cohorts, to see what happened in terms of increases in life expectancy for women once they were adults. They actually have men and women in this, too. I'll show you both. Um, and what they found was something that also is pretty staggering. So if you look at women at the bottom, um, these are two cohorts, a cohort of women born in 1920, 1940. They actually did a whole set of um, cohort effects, but these illustrate the case. There is really no increase in life expectancy for women in the bottom decile over this time, and almost no increase in the next decile, and a tiny amount here. When you look out at women in the top deciles, there actually are years of increases in life expectancy, like somewhere between four and five, as you're looking at this. So things did get better for women in the top deciles, but complete, like limited improvement or stagnation at the bottom. If you look at men, you see the same you know, effect in terms of at the top, there was actually an absolute increase of 6.4 years. At the bottom, there was an increase of 1.8 years in life expectancy for men. It takes you somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the women's of deciles of women, like 30 to 40 percent of women, to get a 1.8 year increase in life expectancy. That's like, you know, the bottom <coughs> third of the United States of women in the United States to get up to what men. Um, did at the very bottom. And is this all U.S. data? Yes. This is actually, they did two things. One of it is um, from just looking at SIP data. They did another thing looking at Social Security data, and they did another from the Health and Retirement Survey. And the report is great. If anybody wants to do the look at the report, it's great. Because <laughs> the implications for extending Social Security benefits and working, you know, or limiting Social Security, having people work longer, um, what they conclude is that it benefits wealthy people enormously, and it actually disadvantages people at the bottom in a pretty major way. The implications are that extensions in, of years of working for um, Social Security, which is something that I actually think is a good idea on the whole, um, will disadvantage people who are most disadvantaged. Um, so I want you to keep in mind now, okay, the picture is U.S. is at the bottom, and people at the bottom are really at the bottom of the U.S. Um, over this time. And what is going on, right? 
So here's some other things that are going along that nobody looked at in this National Academy of Science um, panel, including me. It, was, it wasn't until the end of it that I looked and said, we're not dealing with the major phenomena that are happening in America during this time. We're just like looking at the usual suspects in public health. We're looking at smoking, obesity, you know, things that we know are social risk factors, but we're not understanding fundamentally what's happened in the United States that could affect women a lot, men also, but less, um, that's changed in 25 years. But that was, to me, the question. Well, here are some things that have changed. Um, you know, the number of births to single mothers has escalated hugely in the United States. Um, here, if we look at shared, share of unmarried. Um, women share births to unmarried women. You know, it's up around 41%. Um, you know, in 1960, like the way many of these reports are framed, you know, when Mo Moynihan wrote reports that we have a problem, it was 5 or 6% um, during this time. We're way up there. And the number of women in the labor force is huge, right? So number of women working with young children is huge. And of course, this is probably the thing that you um, know the best. You know, if you look at where the United States ranks in paid leave, um, in the United States, you know, it's here, and it still doesn't have paid leave. It has, you know, FMLA, which applies to about half of workers, um, and is still an unpaid leave um, to do it. So we are a country in which actually fertility has remained relatively high. Women have entered the labor force in droves. Um, most married couples are dual career. Um, working and we have no um, basically parental leave or maternity leave even if you look um, back early. So it's like this perfect storm. It was like this light bulb went up and I thought well this is the hard part of um, being a working woman um, in America especially if you have family obligations and almost every other country doesn't quite have the perfect storm. So you know fertility is high in France um, women are in the labor force in France, but huge social protection, right? In Italy um, or Spain, fertility has dropped. Um, Japan, fertility has <coughs> dropped, and women are in the workforce. Um, so almost nobody has this, you know, kind of regular fertility. On, you know, it's it's dropped a little bit, but not huge, and participation in the labor force and no policy. So that's actually what drove a lot of the work that I've done over the last five years. And I think this is a completely unproven um, factor that could account for why women are doing so badly, but it's potentially very, very revealing. And I think there's like a there there to it. So I'm gonna show you two studies um, that suggest that these things are important, and then we can just open it up for discussion. So the first one is on the long-run effects of maternity leave on women's mental health. So just to frame this again, um, depression is one of the major causes of global burden of disease. Um, it's very important, and almost all maternity studies have looked at the effects of maternity benefits on kids, but not on women. <laughs> um, who are doing it, and they look at it, um, if they look at women, they're looking at short-term labor supply, like did it keep women in the labor force, which is actually quite important. So this is just really recapping that when we think about it, there's an increased labor force participation for women during the second half of the 20th century. Um, you can see even in Europe, 
um, you know, the percentage of people in the labor force went from about, women in the labor force went uh, from about 38% to 71% with at least a child younger than six. And starting in the early 1960s, many European countries um, enacted comprehensive maternity leave policies. And at the same time, there's an increasing burden of depression in old age. Um, it's one of the leading cause of disability worldwide. And depressive symptoms are very common in old ages. Um, and our idea has been, you know, if any of you have looked at life course issues, there's a lot of work on early childhood effects on um, old age or aging consequences. And I think early childhood is a very important time. But I do actually think there are other important times in life. Um, there is adult development at about the time that people finish high school and join the workforce and do family formation. It's another incredibly important element. So our hope was to look at midlife, early adulthood to midlife um, factors and how they could actually cause scarring kind of 30 or 40 years later. So our question is, do maternity leave policies affect mental health? And here is some, are some of the ideas that we have for potential pathways. We've done some work on this, but not a lot. But um, part of the idea is that the channels would be that maternity leave policies could reduce immediate pressures um, and reduce depression postpartum, not necessarily postpartum depression is, is a quite medical term for very severe depression, but women are more likely to be hospitalized for depression um, around the time they have a child than any other time in their lives. So this is not a small issue. Um, there are stressful life events that are related to recurrent um, depression, and what we do know is that depression um, often sets in um, for everybody in people's early 20s. Very few um, cases of depression pop up when somebody's 65, de novo. Mostly, depression is something that kind of emerges in early adulthood and kind of cycles through people's lives. Yep. Can I ask a question related to your, your focus on depression? Um, are people dying more or less of the same things in the United States as they do? I mean, there's probably like, differences yeah, in the way great. things are diagnosed over the course of 25 years, so that yeah. would kind of confound things a little bit, but you yeah. know, generally, are we dying of the same thing, and then are you sort of presuming that depression just sort of like lowers immune system and resilience, and so that would explain why we're more vulnerable to disease? So both of those things, but those are really great questions, so it is really hard to look at the causes. In general, the, like the causes of death for poor people are about the same as the causes of death for better off people but the rates are higher. Right? Okay. The first cause is heart disease, second is cancer, and that kind of thing. However, if you've read the paper that Ann, Keith, Ann Case and Angus Deaton wrote on mortality among kind of middle-aged people, they've just wrote a paper, which actually other people have been looking at, but I think what they pointed is that one of the things that's been on the rise and is a larger cause of death than it was before are a whole set of things that are related to mental health. So suicide, opioid use, accidents, um, you know, things like that. Oh, so oh. so there, there is some feeling that mental health issues or violence are um, like on the rise in certain groups. And I would say it's like a hint, like not a, not a slam dunk, but a hint. 
that this could be. And there, there are a lot of data that show that depression and uh, the social experiences, the stressful experiences that go kind of travel with depression are related to increased mortality <coughs> risk. So this is a viable um, mechanism. In fact, the data that I'm going to show you are on SHARE, on the European study of SHARE. And um, they don't have mortality data, so we couldn't, um, we couldn't look at the mortality data, which I'll show you quickly in the second um, study. So these are the, this is the data that we use. It comes from the um, Health and Retirement Study in Europe, which is a study of about 19 countries. Um, over time, we actually um, look at 13 countries and then limited it more, but it's a multidisciplinary cross-country panel survey that's representative of um, uh, men and women 50 and over. There are about 30,000 um, people in the study. We um, look at a wave three um, study that they did, which they call Share Life, which is an event history, where they actually ask for every year of your life kind of what happened in terms of occupation, family, residential history, stressful life events, health. So we can construct complete working histories for women and complete fertility histories. Um, for people. And we look at um, a mental health outcome from the EuroD, which is a depressive symptom scale in 2004-2006 when they enrolled a new cohort, and we have an extensive set of measures of um, control variables, basically physical health, a lot of demographics, labor market behaviors, pensions. The policy data um, come from Anne Gauthier, who constructed what my understanding is probably the best data on family policy looking at maternal, parental, and child care leave policies and cash benefits um, between about 1960 and if we go up to 2010 in this. Um, and it covers all the share countries that we wanted to look. Now, we only looked at maternity leave because um, paternity and family leave was, is actually quite hard to categorize in this database. And we're looking at women who are older um, and share life now, so that if we wanted to look at the policies that people were looking at in basically like 1960, 70, 80, it's only maternity policies that are consistent and for which we have enough strength. So it would be great to look at the other policies, but we are just limited um, in that way. So we only look at maternity leave, um, and we know from other studies that, that these policies influence a wide range of labor market outcomes, in fact, helping women to kind of be, remain attached to the labor force. And there have been some maternal studies looking immediately and child health outcomes that are pretty clear. And from this database, we construct a variable um, that we look at the combination of both cash benefits and time off. It's sort of a generosity um, measure that contains um, both the total number of weeks of maternity leave and the cash benefits paid during maternity leave. So it's full wage weeks that you have off. Almost all of the um, <laughs> countries that we looked at came very, very close to 100% of replacement if they were doing, um, if they were paying um, for that. So that's the way we're looking at this. Um, most leaves were between, there's a set of countries that have consistently sort of six to 12 weeks of leave and another set 12 to 18 weeks of leave and Sweden is off the charts. Um, I'll show you the data. We actually in the end exclude Sweden, although it doesn't make a huge difference. It's just during that time Sweden went to about a year um, of leave. So we look, um, we use these full wage weeks as basically our exposure. 
And this is what um, the data look like. These are all the countries that we have good data for. This is Sweden. Um, up here, it's paid maternity leave over the years between 1960 and 2010. And in this slide, um, just Sweden dominates, so you can't actually see the variation. So if we just take Sweden out, you see, because we're going to do country fixed effects, that if we do country fixed effects, we still have like a lot of variation um, to be looking at over time. Um, in terms of who we're looking at, we actually have done a lot of um, kind of identification and trying different groups. In the end, we looked at first childbirths because we thought that people could select um, differentially if, they, if we looked at all childbirths. People might decide in generous states, countries, they might have more kids. So we wanted to do that. And in the end, we actually reduced the age to between 16 and 25, also in part to be ultra-conservative about when, pe when women were calculating with the idea that women were most likely to um, not be influenced by the policy if they had early births, and it actually allowed us to compare it to women who were not working. Um, really, so it was just a reduced possibility to adjust labor market involvement. Um, and we actually have done it other ways as well. It doesn't make a huge difference. Yeah, could you just share, do you have a sense of what percentage of first births fall into the 16 oh, to 25 gosh, I bet range? it's in the paper. Um, I want to say um, that it's a lot for this age. I mean, like I would have said 30 or 40 percent. We did also an analysis, the number that I do remember is that we thought about having, looking at women who only had one kid, but that's a tiny percent of the group of women who have kids. It's like 7%. So a lot of women do this. This is like before women were 35 when they had kids, uh, by and large. Did, did you um, yeah. also do a sensitivity analysis to check if that yes. differed? Yes. So we've done a lot of sensitivity analyses. A lot of it um, are in the paper. We looked at women of a much broader age range. As a matter of fact, we didn't do this till reviewers kind of push back. <laughs> um, I don't think there's a huge amount, except reviewers just were so concerned with selection that they kept pushing and pushing. So we, that's what we have. But if you looked at 16 to 30, you could, you, it doesn't turn out very differently. And in fact, if you look at all childbirths, it doesn't turn out actually to be um, that differently. So we've done a, a bunch of sensitivity analysis. So we're going to do country fixed effects as well as your birth fixed effects. And we also control for age, education, marital status, total fertility, physical health at old age, health behaviors, birth control, um, and country-specific year birth trends um, over time. And if we just look at the difference in depression score by full wage weeks among not working women who had a childbirth at the same time, actually, so they're matched by year for when they had a kid, and working um, women, and you look at, these are the full wage weeks at the bottom, you see at the very beginning, actually, working at childbirth has slightly higher depression um, scores, lower, but that soon, as soon as these benefits kick in, you see that women who are um, not working at childbirth actually have higher um, depression scores than women who are working, matching on childbirth. Um, so this is just a very descriptive kind of thing. Obviously related, potentially, you know, a lot of selection could go in here. And just to look at this differential, um, by taking the difference in that former graph, you see here's the, here's the little space where um, non-working women actually are doing better than working women, and then you see as full wage weeks kick in, 
this really very quite powerful effect um, on depressive symptoms. And ultimately, this is, um, this is the difference in difference score. So we compare working women who have, who are either in countries with um, maternity leave benefits that are low or high, and these are their depressive symptom scores, or women who are not working had a child in the same period, the same age, um, who are also living in countries where the maternity leave benefits are low or high, and then we do a difference in difference, and basically the 16% out there is the difference in depression scores between living in a low versus a high um, country-specific, or it's the, it's the difference between the benefit of living in a high full-wage week country um, having a child when you look at the difference between working and non-working women. Now, one of the things about this is that we've been questioned about this as a control group. We did this because we assume that um, women who are not working shouldn't benefit from the maternity benefits, right? And I still think this is a really good control group. People have asked, well, what about men? Like, just in terms of what was going on, because a lot of policies kicked in during the same period that maternity benefits kicked in. Unemployment kicked in, pensions kicked in. So a lot of our work has been to isolate the effect of maternity benefits. And we thought, ultimately, this is the best comparison of just looking at women who are not working. But if you look at men, you see the same, actually, as the control group. You see um, the same kind of thing. And we actually, in lots of the models and when we're looking at sensitivity analysis, we actually tried to construct a variable of uh, unintended pregnancies, which was whether you lived in a country with um, um, no abortion um, or anti-abortion laws or pills weren't available early on, um, birth control was limited and things like that. And all of these basically stand up. I mean, it's incredibly robust. Um, almost any cluster of variables that you can say, well, I wonder whether this is true or not, um, it looks like this, this holds up at about the same magnitude. Yeah? The women who did not have benefits, did they in fact go back to work way sooner than the women who had benefits? Well, that's a really good question. You because I think there is American data showing this. Actually, that's a really good question and I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, but we could look at that because we've got these life histories. Yeah, That's think, a great question. Yeah, and uh, my other thought is, how much is sleep a mediating factor here? Yes. Because you must when be a mother. mother. <laughs> <laughs> and a grandmother. Yes. Yeah. Um, so sleep is one of the you know hot, totally hot hypotheses. And um, in actually, this, I didn't bring the slide that I was going to bring about our other work family study. Sleep is incredibly responsive, reactive to work family strain um, in lots of ways. And we have actigraphy data for this other study that I'm going to show you that shows that sleep is probably one of the really important mechanisms. Um, and our intervention that I will also show you, and also you're going to have Erin Kelly come next week. Erin and I worked together on the same work family project for many years, so I think she'll she'll fill you in a lot on that study, and she'll probably show you, I hope, some of the sleep data, or I'll email her to show some of the sleep data. So the idea is that sleep actually biologically influences your risk of depression, as well as a whole set of health and metabolic variables. So in these data, we don't have sleep. Even lifespan. Yes. Yes, sleep is really important, and I actually resisted when I first started these actigraphy studies 
people, um, I said, no, 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 it's depression that influences sleep, which it does. You know, when you're really depressed, it actually disrupts your sleep cycle as well. So it goes, it fl it goes that direction. But sleep also causes incredible changes. So and can, in fact, if you sleep deprived people, they will become depressed. Yes, right, right. So I think that that's a really, a really good mechanism, potentially. Yeah. Terrible news, but <laughs> <laughs> when you when I'm looking at this, you know, there's a there's almost a bigger gap, isn't there, for the non-working yeah, than so the working. So how do you how do you think about that? I mean, that's that's driving part of the difference in difference. Yes, right? yes, yeah. actually, that's this this is the mystery, right? Like, why do not working women yeah. in high maternity leave countries have higher depression rates? And we actually don't totally understand that. But one of the things is that it may be a comparative sort of thing. Like yeah. if you live yeah. in a high benefit country, and in fact you've made this choice somehow, like you're not in the yeah. labor force when actually the majority of people are in the labor, majority of women are in the labor force, it may be that it's, it is really depressing. So yeah, part of what drives this is this difference, which we don't totally, totally have a handle on, but it's notable. Yeah. And I think that in addition to there being the effect of after the decision is made, yeah. that there may be this experience of being outside the norm group, but I also think it's mm -hmm. who selects in, um, that it may be that people who have whatever they are, physical, mental, mm -hmm. or other issues, which make it harder to do both roles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that you also are seeing a selection bias. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are selection things that still potentially enter in here, except that it's like this difference in difference um, to do it. But it's it it is it is like intriguing that that group has is worse off whether they select out in a country where they could have had maternity leaves and they have kids, or whether something else happens. It's really it's really mysterious. In, and then we'll go around. Go ahead. In that number set, did you also have a sense of socioeconomic option and viability? You mean? Meaning was the set, when we look at the not working in high benefit countries, right. are the people who are home depressed and not working less likely to have had access to education, abs, um, access to the labor market? So are you really seeing? Yeah. So we control for severe? all of those things. We're controlling for anything that we have about their income or their work status or their history during that period. Um, one of the things we don't know, remember, this is depression when they're in the, in the older ages, right? This is not their depression at the time that they were in the workforce, because we don't have that. We have it when they were older, and we're assuming, you know, we're thinking, well, one channel might be this sort of thing. So we control as best we can for what the environment was then, um, but it's, we're, we're limited. We're limited in what, in what we have. Yep. I think you just answered my question. Yeah. I was the time frame. What, what's the time frame? Twenty years. The time frame of, of this study. How? So the study. So the the people had to be fifty and over, like in two thousand and four. So think of them as in a cohort that was. I mean, they tend to be like a nineteen forty cohort or above. I mean, a lot of there are some people born who would be a nineteen thirties cohort. A lot of people are nineteen forties and nineteen fifties cohorts. So they would have been working, you know, figure like, I mean, we look from 1960 to 1980s, 90s, that's when most of their births um, were. Great, thank you. And I know that you accounted for SES, but how did your estimates look when for your working people, 
you had the the low the lower uh, types of job types uh -huh. and the higher types how much difference so we didn't we didn't actually we were at the limit of anything we could do other than control for these things like we tried to actually stratify by a bunch of things gets to be really hard so we have all that data in there and it may be that the best thing is for me to go on to the next study because yeah. all these things actually relate to the next study um, in terms of observational stuff and I can show you like a little bit better how it works how it plays out observationally at least hopefully quick question mm -hmm. did you also look at the cohort of women who didn't have children um, they're excluded from this, but in other analyses we have actually looked and where at them. Do they fall on depression they're not. They're not in here. In no, order, I, but if you were to take their depression score at age 15, oh, oh, they, um, who do they look more like? What do they look like? Women who were not work, like working or not working. I guess either. Um, so I think what happens is that they look a little bit more like not working people. But we took them out pretty early, um, so we basically looked at people who had a first birth. That was the study. But that's also a good point. I mean, we can go back and um, look at a bunch of these. Okay, so tell me about timing. So we've got to the top of the hour. Okay, so let me go to the second study and I will go through it um, so that you get sort of the gestalt of it and then we can come back and talk about what we think. So overall, um, just to conclude this, depression in old age is linked to maternity leave policies during the critical period of a birth of a first child. And there's about a 16% um, advantage by living in a country with high maternity leave policies. Um, we think that there are a couple of mechanisms. One is that it actually reduces um, stress and depression, which is ultimately linked to recurrent depression during that time. And we have some data on that because we have some data on, at, in, on life events in midlife, and it looks like that's happening. <coughs> but we also think it could have it could have helped you bond with your child better. It could have set up you know, a long-run labor force participation attachment that continues to play out, and that reduces stress over your entire life cycle, so that this event that's kind of an acute event actually is not really an acute event. It kind of enables people to stay in the workforce, it helps them to bond and establish a good relationship with children, and then move on. But again, very limited data. Um, the other thing I just want to point out um, especially for policy people, is that depression is very costly. Um, people who are depressed use more health services, more medical supplies, more home care, assisted living than older people without depression. And um, there have been some calculations of the um, mean direct health care costs in old age per patient. Um, and here they are. It's about 5,241 um, euros for people who are depressed compared to 3,648 um, per year for non-depressed. Um, so it's about a 30% difference. It's huge. It's a, actually a huge difference. And um, a lot of the cost-benefit analyses that anybody does about policies ignore long-run health effects. They almost never have them. They have short-run effects. They have labor supply things. They have things that you can attach a dollar amount to pretty easily. But if you started to think about the range of policies that have long-run health impacts, um, and feed that into a cost-benefit analysis, it would probably help a lot of um, social and economic policies in making the case. So we do that, and in fact, you know, there are some countries, um, including the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, Ireland, um, um, Lithuania, that have implemented cuts to current benefit provisions, um, in part on cost-benefit sorts of arguments, when in fact nobody has counted these kind of costs. It. So that's the other argument. So let me go to um, 
a kind of a sister study that we launched with this. Um, we've done a whole series of papers, but this is like this is the last one that actually includes a measure of job strain um, in it. And it's about the, what happens when you have this combination of work stress, motherhood, and whether you're single or married um, in terms of predicting mortality risk for women. Um, many existing approaches to this look at a single exposure time point and a longitudinal outcome. Right? Almost mm -hmm. nobody thinks, well, you know, nobody's work family life is actually constant. It's a completely variable thing. But we often, because it's really hard statistically to think about doing this, like take one slice. Well, what were you doing at 35? What were you doing at 30? What were you doing at 40 or something? Um, so clearly work-family situations are not constant. So we tried to come to grips with this. And um, I'll show you how we did it. We did this in women who are in the health and retirement study, which is the sister study to share um, in the United States, um, women born between 1935 and 56, which is very parallel to the analyses I just showed you. There were about 7,500. Um, and again, we could have complete histories, not quite as good as SHARE. Um, HRS actually didn't do quite as well as SHARE in terms of doing a year-by-year -year analysis. Um, and we needed some imputations here. Um, but we did basically have, um, for each age, between 16 and 50, we asked, was the woman married? Um, HRS, again, did this great job at not asking um, partnership status until recently. Um, so when you go back, they just ask whether you were married or not. So we have no data on partnerships um, in this, which is really too bad because all the European countries have data on partnership status, but we don't. Um, we asked whether they had a child under 18 and were they working. So it's three combinations. So there are eight possible combinations each year. Okay, so you can kind of see where we're going. Um, we actually reduced it to kind of six um, kind of common streams because there were some categories that had very, very few people in them. Um, however, what I want to say is that this is an impossible task to do perfectly, um, that there's enormous heterogeneity in all these combinations. In fact, theoretically, there's like four to times 10 to the 31 ways women could combine marriage, work, and children. And in fact, when you look at the data, this is not for you to really look, if you just want to see how many unique combinations of the 7,536 women, there were 6,489 unique combinations. So that's an impossible thing to look at. So what we've done is a sequence analysis, which is actually a little bit like a genetic sequence analysis, where you look at, it, and it's very similar to a kind of cluster, where you identify common patterns. Statistically, empirically, you, you identify common patterns. Um, and cluster people who are similar but not identical, right? Because otherwise there are 6,000 of them. And these were um, the groups that we defined when we did the sequence analysis that seemed to describe most people pretty well. So if you looked at the bottom, 34% of people <coughs> fall into the category, this is 16, that's when they're 50. Um, so the pink is not working and not having kids, right? So their early years, they're not working, not having kids. Then they move to the purple, they're working, they still don't have kids. They're green, they are working, they're married, and they have kids. And then, um, you know, somewhere around 48, which probably sounds right for us, finally, like, kids leave. Um, and they don't have kids at home, and they're back to working with no kids. 
Um, but if you look at the patterns, you can see there's a, a huge diversity. So this um, pattern is not working and not having kids um, early on, and then there's no work, no marriage, but they do have kids. So these are like non-working single mothers, and then they go back. This one, for instance, is not working, no kids early on, and then they move into a category where they work and have kids, but they're single. Um, that's 8%. So you can see these various combinations, and they describe imperfectly the range of options. And if we just look at their mortality rates, their age-standardized mortality rates, um, you can see, um, without controlling for anything for a minute, you can see what happens. So married mothers do the best. Um, and working earlier or later is the best. So the best option, you'll be all happy, is to be a working married mom <laughs> um, in this. Now, there are clearly selection factors going on, right? We know through all of this there's selection. That's why I started with the maternity benefits. Um, one. These are the women who are healthiest. And the best option actually seems empirically that it's people who took off a little time. Either they took off a little time early in their careers or they took off a little time later in their careers. They didn't totally work straight through. Um, then these are working non-moms. So these are women who are working who never had children. They have pretty low mortality rates. These are married mothers who didn't have children who always, oh, I'm sorry. These are um, married moms who always work. That is, they didn't take off any time, right, compared to these. And they have slightly higher mortalities. Um, and then married mothers who never worked actually have high mortality. Now, there is undoubtedly selection in this if people stayed at home. But it also is kind of intri intriguing that there isn't a huge protective effect to staying at home. Um, and not working as a married mom. And down here you have single mothers. And whether they're working or non-working, I mean single non-working mothers are clearly there's a selection thing that goes on and they're at huge risk. But single working moms are at risk and I would say of all the studies we've done, um, we've seen the penalty actually, the long-term disadvantage that single mothers have um, in this, even when they're partnered. Um, so in the European data we can actually look at this, it still seems like it's really hard. But it's really hard in the United States. And in the United States, it's um, in part mediated by poverty. So the fact that um, working single moms are so poor actually accounts for a bunch of it. But you can see it in other countries, too. So I don't want you to hang on to this a lot because it's not controlling for things. I just wanted you to kind of see how this plays out. Now, one of the things that we've um, speculated is that people who are in jobs where they have high control and low demand would be very um, protected um, in this. And we actually speculated that this would be especially true for single mothers. I'm going to tell you the bottom line is it doesn't actually protect particularly against single mothers. But um, workplace schedule control and um, those sorts of control policies should be kind of symbolic of workplace flexibility and we think are important. So in order to do that, we actually looked at occupation and industry measured um, census codes, which have been um, walked back to 1970 when most of these women were in the workforce. And then we used, there's some very good work in Europe um, looking at average uh, demand control 
job strain measures for demand and control. And this has been crosswalk between Europe and the United States to match to occupation. So we actually basically assigned a job that a woman was in, a job strain score based on their occupation. Not what they reported, but on the occupation. So if any of you are, are you familiar with these job strain things? So, you know, like an example of a uh, low demand, low or low demand, low control job is like a doorman. Like there are some jobs where you have to sit there the whole time and you have no control, but you also have no demand. That turns out to be not terrific. But to be in a fast pace, like if you're a factory worker, this is a factory worker, this is where this evolved, and you're in a high demand, that is you have to keep making widgets, right, um, and you have no control over pacing, that's a really high stress job. So we basically looked at this, and in the end, each person had a family trajectory, a job control tertile, and a job demand um, tertile, and then we looked at the association um, between these three things um, together to see what their mortality risk was. And basically, this is actually not such an easy thing um, to look at. If you looked at uh, later single mothers, earlier single mothers, I hope I didn't actually put the wrong, let me just, there it is, that's the one I want. So this is combining everything together. Um, so if you were like the average married mother and you were um, in a high control job, you're the reference. That's the best possible life, all right? Um, and you can still see there's some increase in risk if you're in a low control job. If you were a single mother here, whether you were, um, whether you were a single mother early in your life or later in your life, um, low job control is really, um, really increasing your gym. So if you're a single mom and basically you are in a low control job, you have a really increased risk compared to this person. But single moms always have increased risks, no matter what their job is. Even you know here, high control job, you see the increased risk. And you see actually for basically um, married moms who are in the workforce that having a low control job also is somewhat elevated, but it's not as high as this. Like this is, this is the most toxic combination out there. Now we've looked at economic status, which plays a lot into this. Um, and one of the issues is economic status always is a really important predictor of this. Um, it's like in there a lot. Low control jobs are highly correlated with economic conditions, really highly correlated, like, like um, you know, 0.5 or something like that um, with this. In fact, people have argued that the definition of um, control is, is synonymous with having a low income job um, for doing it. So it's hard to, to separate that out, but I don't want to say that this um, like eradicates the effect of low income working wage jobs because it doesn't. It's, it's almost saying the same thing um, to this. So these are observational data and they also suggest that um, this combination of working and having a high stress job together are really tough, but they're particularly tough for women who are not married, who are single in, this, in these data. So that really is it. So public policies related to maternity leave can have these long run effects at older ages that appear in older ages. And work-family conflict can have a really a profound impact um, 
on health, among, especially among, I would say, people with limited resources, whether they're social or economic. So I think that's why single moms come out particularly, and also while um, like lower wage workers also come out as being particularly vulnerable in this. So wonderful, those. Can I just ask a clarifying question mm -hmm. while other people put yep. together their thoughts? Like, yep. So you don't have socioeconomic control data then in this one that you just showed us? Um, not in the very last model, but in all the other models. In all do. the other models you did? Yes. Okay, okay, yes. okay. But the, so the share also had the benefit of the having... The share totally. Totally controlled. had it. But this yes. other one that's conducted in the U.S. doesn't give you the socioeconomic breakdown. Um, it, no, it, it does. It can't. It doesn't have income for those areas, but it has occupation, which we can code into categories, but because the job strain categories are coded by occupational code, oh, they're, yeah, they're yeah. the same, they're in this case the same thing. So yeah. it's really hard to look at them separately. We've actually looked at it with like fewer digits, you know, looking at more general occupations and you can see it, but it's, it's, it's because they're both going, they're both basically measured by, by occupational codes, right. not yeah. income. Right. So if you go back to the one that you showed, that the first one, the the where you had um, I think uh, late break or early break, yeah. and then you had, have you looked at um, occupational differences within groups? Just even like simple differences. No, it would be actually a really good idea. Because I was one thing mm -hmm. I was thinking is like the continuum. It just this is a no, I don't great. know, yeah. but presumably you have to have pretty high. SES to have that choice to mm -hmm. have taken a break earlier and later in life. And so yeah. I was just thinking that maybe that's the most interesting comparison between the not working, right? Because the, the probably demographically there is this, yeah. you know what I mean? That's if you great. want to go yeah, back and look yeah, at a choice. A good idea. Because it's, it's, it really, in your, in your first study, you don't emphasize it much in your conclusions, but it, there really is this almost like risk of being a mother who doesn't work in a society when women have that option. Yes, and it, yes that's and sort it's of like, like two little pieces. In both of them, it's yes. this really thing, and it's like a deflation of status. Yeah. It's a very, uh, it's really kind of profound. Actually, I've never, I, you're right, it's in both studies. In yeah, it's in ways. both studies, yeah. To do it, okay, yeah. Yeah, non-working women don't come out well, whether it's selection or something. Yeah, um, yeah. They don't, they don't fare well. Right. Yes. Have you uh, given any thought to uh, the availability and cost of child care as it feeds into this? Yes. We have and we don't have any good comparative data. Mm. <laughs> we have thought about it a lot. We, as, as a matter of fact, we've tried to think of other policies that we could use to right. illustrate it besides maternity benefits. And child care is like number one on the list. Um, and the comparative data are terrible. Yeah. And the federal, the kind of the policy is really hard as well. So we can see whether individuals do it, but it's really hard. Yeah. It, but mean, it would be great. Yeah, it strikes me that some women may feel a forced choice mm -hmm. that essentially, maybe, maybe not just with one child, but by the time they have the second child, mm -hmm. to pay for those two kids, they essentially don't make enough to yeah. justify doing that. Yeah, yeah. It would be great. We could certainly look and at that. And then their identity, yeah. they lose their whole work yeah. identity. And by the time they get back, they've lost years of yes. possible career advancement that they can never get back. Right, right. That's really, that's really interesting. And we could look at that. We just can't quite look at it with as good a policy kind of instrument as we do. Yeah. 
um, here, but it's a great idea. Have another one. <laughs> <laughs> or pushback, tell yeah, me you don't believe back. me. <laughs> tell me you think this is nuts. Like, it doesn't, it's not what's wrong with America today. There's something else. I mean, I actually gave a talk last night and um, to a Harvard alumni kind of development thing, uh -oh. and they all, yeah, they all said, you know, well, we're not going to change work, it's obesity. Hmm. You know, it's that everybody can afford to buy terrible food. Oh. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> you know, where did that come from? Um, and I like pushed back. But you can, this is not, I mean, I think these two studies are strong, but I think that in terms of explaining why the U.S. is doing so badly or what's explaining this mortality stagnation at the bottom, there are a lot of potential explanations. I wouldn't say this is it. I just think it's an incredibly interesting research area and one you should all go into or push back. So. Skeptics, welcome. Can I ask a question that maybe the, the students would enter in on? But like, how is this received when you talk to policymakers? I mean, this is what it's it's such, a, you know, the I mean, we, we have this problem in the United States and in the private sector as well as the public sector of of getting people to think in very long term time horizons. And I'm just wondering what type of responses you get when you engage with policymakers. I mean, are they can are are they able to weight in such long term effects into uh, yeah. current decision making? So, let me say. Two, two different things. One is there are people, um, I actually like testify for Bernie Sanders and for an inequality thing, like years ago, like four or five years ago before and anybody thought he would do what he's doing. And Elizabeth Warren was there as well. They totally got it. <laughs> and so did the people like from Minnesota who were there. Yeah. And you know, for people with a, li a liberal agenda kind of see this honestly as fodder, like they should be yeah, using this yeah. as ammunition. They're incredibly yeah. pro this kind of thinking. However, the other flip side that's been really interesting, and Erin again will talk more about this next week, in our work family study we have two industries, and the one that I led was in nursing homes, and it was nursing home systems where we basically did, so low wage hourly workers in a nursing home, and I thought nursing homes would never let us in and would be completely against us kind of fooling around with workplace flexibility and work family things. They were ecstatic about it and it was the top of their agenda because they know that they miss their cost um, of turnover where all good people leave. <laughs> you know, in some nursing homes, nurses, like 85% of nurses turn over in a year or CNAs, but certainly people who are competent keep climbing a ladder and go to a better nursing home and a better benefits and a better um, place and sickness absence. So the rule in a nursing home without any policy about anything is that the only alternative you can do is call in sick. And you then have to say you're sick, can't say your kid's sick or your mother's sick, and you basically call out for a day. Um, and in fact, mostly what goes on is probably a lot like our lives, like they do have a sick kid, they have to go to the doctor. They have a teacher thing, they have to go to a teacher thing. Their mother is like, needs a ride home from the doctor. And if you planned it and were, could be honest, you would take off two hours. You know, you would say, I'm here till one, I have to go pick up my mom and I'll be back um, again. But they can't be truthful. So they were completely open to us doing um, uh, an intervention around work family things where people could have increased schedule control. And they saw this as good for the bottom line. That's a for-profit where the bottom line is 
you know, tiny margin. And so you can see that there are companies out there who can frame this, not so much in terms of the 35-year yeah. long run, but that this could be good for their workforce. They know they're losing. They know, especially in industries dominated by women, that they're losing a lot um, by not having some kind of flexibility. And they're just, I think, really fearful that it will be too expensive. Right? They can't all have paid leave for four months or something, or six months. They, like that's you know, kind of the Cadillac. But they can do something, and they're pretty open to it. I've been surprised how receptive businesses are I to think, this. I think we're starting to see that also, because uh, there's some Google, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, they're starting mm -hmm. to offer uh, maternity leave benefits for women. So, yep. And there's also a state that's California. California that's has paid sick so leave. paid family leave. Right. So when you do this study again some years from now, you know there yeah. might be some noticeable differences. And I wanted to say that in terms of your conclusions, I absolutely agree <coughs> with your, your two points. Um, however, I think that from your results, I, I did personally a study on a, a global study on lone, on mothers, on mm -hmm. women in general, and in all countries that we studied, lone mothers fared poorest, and you see also in yes. your results. And so I would, in my view, I think maybe you could add a third bullet point mm -hmm. that highlights, especially uh, for lone mothers, we yeah. need to have a, a special policy yeah. uh, for these women. So Actually, it's not really because good. they don't, a lot of them can't access a maternity leave benefit. Right. What you right. I think that's excellent. And we have the same thing. Being a lone mother is incredibly um, related to risk in almost every country we look at. And we've tried it actually in developing countries too. We had a, pro, uh, a workshop where we had um, women from India and China and they all said it's the same It's the same issue. Like the solution is really different, but the issue is really similar. Yeah. Just a comment because we're yes. talking about public policy. It's really good and ideal to have a long maternity leave for mothers, but it's effect for example, in the Philippines, it would discourage employers for, from employing women because they would be benefiting women. Yeah. Also, cost benefit analysis. I'm just thinking yeah. about that when we write about public policy, how this would impact indirectly. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually, I'm completely, I mean, I think maternity benefits can be expensive and they're differential, right? So they, that was one of the things in our nursing home study is. Like, we're going to give people flexibility who have kids, but not who have blah, blah. So um, it can be really hard. I would say, ultimately, like, family leave leaves are better and more neutral. I mean, we just couldn't evaluate that here. Um, but policies, I mean, like in Finland, where they have these linked family leave policies for both partners is probably the ideal um, going forward. But if it keeps people out of the, you know, pro- if it if it limits women's opportunities to be hired, that's like the you know the negative spillover. That's really yeah, it's tough. You've leaving us left us with a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, thank you very yeah. much. week, uh, as uh, Lisa already mentioned, uh, we've got Erin Kelly coming. She's a professor of work and organization studies at the Institute for Work and Employment Research at, at MIT Sloan School of Management. She's going to talk about redesigning work findings from the Work, Family, and Health Network and implications for gender inequality. 
So we're really looking forward to that talk. Hope you'll join us for that as well. Thanks again.